This is a sermon preached in the pulpit of Eden Grove Presbyterian Church, Bowen Hinch, Northern Ireland. A place where we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. That the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. This morning we return to the Word of God and today we continue our series in the book of 2 Corinthians. Our passage this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We begin at verse 14 and we go into chapter 7 and verse 1. Uh, This series will take us probably up to around Christmas time. Uh, A shorter version of this sermon is preached in church and this is the longer treatment of the passage Uh, where we take a little bit more time to work our way through. I trust these sermons are a blessing to you. Uh, Second Corinthians was on my agenda for quite some time. Around this time last year, I I planned to preach on it. And so I'm doing that now, and I hope indeed that as we know, the word of God does not return unto him void. And may it do the work today for which he has purposed it. So let's look at this passage. Second Corinthians 6, verse 14 on. And this is the word of God. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Amen. And we thank God as always for his precious word. It doesn't take long for you to grow up in Northern Ireland before you realise that citizenship is an incredibly thorny subject. I was raised in a place called Belfast, in a place where the flag of choice was red, white and blue. To this day, I consider myself a British citizen. It says so on my passport, but I am all too aware that there are those around me who I live beside, work beside, see on a regular basis, who do not share that perspective. Instead of looking to Westminster, they look to Dublin. Instead of looking to Buckingham Palace, they look to a republic where there is no king or queen, but there is instead a president. Citizenship in this part of the world is an incredibly thorny subject, but I do not think that we are alone in that. And indeed, as we will see in the coming months, as Brexit looms ever closer, citizenship and national identity and the colour of your passport is all something that can raise the heckles a little bit and get the blood pumping a little bit faster. Today I'm not too interested in what your national identity is. 
I don't want to talk to you too much about what citizenship you believe you have. Instead, I want us to get into the word of God in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 onwards, and to consider what it is that the Bible says. This passage begins in verse 14 with Paul's statement, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And immediately today, this sermon could go in a place that speaks almost exclusively about marriage. Often when we ask ask ourselves as Christians, should we marry non-Christians, this is our go-to passage. We will touch on that later on in this sermon, but it isn't going to be exclusively about that. And spoiler alert, I want to make it clear from the outset that if you are a Christian, then you absolutely should not marry an unbeliever. But I think this passage is bigger than just marriage. I don't think it's necessarily straight up about marriage. Instead, I want us to consider for a little bit our citizenship. If you've been paying attention in this service, then you will have already heard that we are citizens of heaven by nurture or nature of our faith in Christ. But also today we have prayed for the ruling authorities around us. We have reminded ourselves what it is to be a citizen of this land in which we live. And it is there that I want to begin. I want to explain to you and discuss with you for a little moment what the late John Calvin described as a duplex regimen. Now, if we think of those words, we think of a double, a duplex regimen, something that we do quite a bit. Maybe Calvin was speaking about a fitness regimen. Do it twice a week and you will get super fit. That wasn't the case. When John Calvin spoke of a duplex regimen, he was speaking of the world around us. We are living in a two-government, a duplex regimen condition. One government is the secular world around us and the other is the spiritual. The Christian has that identity. Whether we like it or not, we are in this world. We live in this world every single day. One day we will leave this world. We will go to glory. Our citizenship is in heaven where Jesus is. But until then, we do not retreat from this world. We do not buy an island somewhere and make sure only Christians are allowed in. We are citizens of this world, the secular world, the world which has no time for the things of God. You don't believe me? Well, you will see it very quickly. You will go into the town today. You will go to shops. You will be served by people that are not Christians. You will go and work in an office and you perhaps are going to be the only Christian in that place. When you're uh, coming down with ill health and you will go to see your doctor, your doctor may be a pagan. He may be a Jew, he may be a Muslim, or he may be a Christian like you. That is the secular world around us. But too, we as Christians, by faith in Christ, we have been brought into the kingdom of God and our citizenship once more is in heaven. So far so good, but it maybe doesn't seem to make much sense. And maybe you think to yourself, well, Scott, that's just your idea, but please bear with me. It certainly is not. In the book of Acts in chapter 22 and verse 28, Paul makes it clear that he is a Roman citizen by birth. And indeed in Acts 22 and verse 25, speaking about how he should not be flogged, he appeals to the laws of the Roman Empire at that time. 
Paul was very aware that he was a Roman citizen living in the empire of Rome and that was his secular earthly citizenship as it were. And yet Paul was also a man of faith. Paul was also someone who had received Christ by faith and by virtue of that fact it was the same Paul who in Philippians 3 and verse 28 was able to remind us as we have already said in this service that our citizenship as faithful men and women is in heaven and from there we await our saviour Jesus. Immediately you might think well Scott today this all seems a bit of a theological lecture it doesn't seem to have any relevance. It doesn't seem to have any importance. Why on earth are you speaking of duplex regimens and secular and spiritual and all the rest of it? Well, I speak this to you because, as Paul says, we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So if we are to look at this verse and take this verse seriously, then we've got to understand who we are, what we are, and what this world is like all around us. As I wrote devotions on this in the past couple of weeks, I took us to the United States. And if you remember the, the huge debates back in 2016, the church in the United States had got themselves into a little bit of a lather. Donald Trump was the candidate for the Republican Party, a party that has found natural support in conservative Christianity in the United States. But Donald Trump didn't seem to meet the standard. Admittedly, he was a Presbyterian, although his own church said we haven't seen him in a long time. Donald Trump was a man that said he loved the book of the Bible, but when pressed on it, he wasn't able to give a particular verse that he favoured. And Donald Trump was a man who said things that many thought objectionable, and he had been involved in things and done things that caused many to put their hands up and say, I could never vote for such a man. In 2016, what was a Christian to do? And indeed, even before that, when a man called Mitt Romney, a man who was a Mormon, a false religion, was also standing for president, Christians said the same thing. Can we vote for a Mormon? My friends, that is the secular world. That is the one side of the duplex regimen coin. How do we live in this world. Many Christians voted for Donald Trump and many Christians voted for Mitt Romney and many Christians decided they couldn't vote for either man. <sighs> what was a Christian to do? In the secular world it is my opinion that you are able to vote for whoever you want. You should do so prayerfully and carefully. I do not believe you should give your vote just willy-nilly and, and throw it out there for anybody just because they raise the right flag up a flagpole. But the pulpit is not a place for any minister to climb into and say, you must vote this way. You must vote for this party or else. That is the secular regimen, the secular kingdom in which we live every single day. But when the shoe is on the other foot, imagine Donald Trump came to your church. Imagine he came and was standing to be an elder in your church or, or perhaps even a minister in your church. What should you do then? It is my contention that if such a thing ever happened, then Donald Trump, by his actions, by his work, 
should be nowhere near getting your vote to be your new minister. As I've said, his own church said, we didn't see him, we don't see him, he, he never darkens the door of this place. It would seem that Donald Trump's faith, if it exists, is not a strong faith, it is not a saving faith. And may the Lord forgive me if that is not the case, but that's what the evidence seems to suggest. And so in the kingdom of God, the other side of the duplex regiment coin, a man like Donald Trump would not be a good consideration for your minister. And indeed, I would urge that he should be disciplined for the fact that he never, ever comes to church. There's the two sides of the coin. There's the duplex regiment, I hope, described in, in a way that is helpful and a way that helps us make sense of the passage that is before us. But it doesn't mean, like I've said, that the Christians should divorce themselves from the world around us. It doesn't mean that the Christian should only give attention to that which is spiritual. There's no way to escape this world. We are forced to live in it. We are forced to work in it. We are forced to spend many, many, many years of life here in the secular world. Some of you will live in places where there are many Christians and some of you will live in places where there are very few. Some of you will attend churches where you are one church out of many in your town or village or city and some of you will live in places where there's not a church for hundreds of miles and you think to yourself, Scott, that's a nonsense in Northern Ireland. A nonsense. Well, in Northern Ireland it might be a nonsense but if you take a trip down across the border, you will find the Republic of Ireland to be one of the least evangelised places in Western Europe. It's not a nonsense. And many of our brothers and sisters in Christ live on this island and they live far away from a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. How are we to live in such a secular land? The Word of God is not silent. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who in Mark chapter 12 and verse 17, when the thorny issue of taxes comes up, he reminds his followers that they are to render unto Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. The Christian is to follow the laws of the land. The Christian is to pay taxes. As much as we hate paying taxes, we are to render unto Caesar that which belongs to him. And not only that, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, we're told in the word of God that we are to pray for kings and those in high positions. We've done that this morning. We have uh, already brought before the Lord uh, Boris Johnston and Michael Martin and Michael D. Higgins and Arlene Foster and all of these other individuals who are above us and put there by the Lord himself. That is what it is to be a Christian. In this society, obeying the laws of the land and praying for those over us. And indeed, it is the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 and verse 1 who urges us to be subject to the governing authorities. See, there's no room here for the Christian to opt out of the secular world. There is no room here for the Christian to say, we will live in a barn, in a field, on an island, up a mountain, and we will never, ever, ever have anything to do with the secular world. Instead, the Christian should vote, and the Christian should obey the laws of the land, and the Christian should be engaged with the culture around it, seeking to speak truth into that culture. The Christian should pay taxes. The Christian should pay for their leaders. The Christian should be in every way 
a fine and upstanding member of the society in which the Lord has placed us. That is what it is to be a Christian in this secular world. But as I've said, the Christian is also someone who is a member of the church. Someone who is called to exercise their heavenly citizenship here on earth. And where do we find the kingdom of God on earth? The kingdom of God is not of this world. Jesus made that clear in John's gospel. He said that he was not of this world, that his people were not of this world. His kingdom was not of this world. And so we exercise our heavenly citizenship every single day in how we live and walk and act in this world, but also especially in the kingdom of God as it is found here on earth in the church of Jesus Christ. My friends, I'm aware all of this sounds over the top of our heads. And what is the point in spending any time to consider it this morning? Well, here is the point. Paul says in chapter 6 and verse 14 of this passage that we are not to be unequally yoked with believers. The secular and the spiritual are not to come together. And as he explains this, he borrows imagery from Deuteronomy 22 and verse 10 and Leviticus 19 and verse 19, where we read in that, those passages about an ox and a donkey tied together, yoked together and working together. It is simply not possible. A yoke was a, a beam of wood and it was attached to two animals and it united them in the same cause. And here Paul says that the Christian is not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. How can the secular and the spiritual be united? How can they be brought together in a common cause? It is impossible, says Paul. And so when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, the state has no business in telling us what we can and what we cannot preach. When it comes to the secular and the spiritual, the state has no business in directing us to worship in a certain way or to read only certain passages of the Bible. The state has no business doing it. We are not yoked with them. It would be an unequal yoke and we should have nothing to do with it. And in the same way, the spiritual, the kingdom of God, the church of Jesus Christ, should guard against worldly attitudes and standards from creeping into the church. Paul says, we are not to be unequally yoked with believers. The ox and the donkey would be of different sizes, different strengths. They would have different needs. There could be no union between them working in the field. And in the same way, there can be no union between the church and the secular world around us. I've heard many in these days saying that the church needs to, to move with the times or history is going to leave us behind. Rubbish. The church of Jesus Christ has never been commanded by our Lord to move with the times. Never has he told us that we are to obey the spirit of the age, to do what is right in the eyes of many in this world. Absolutely not. The secular and the spiritual do not move to the same beat of the same drum. The church of Jesus Christ listens to Jesus Christ, who is her sole king and head, who laid down his life as a ransom for us. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
And as he develops this idea, he gives various examples. He says, and as verse 14 comes to a close, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? The answer is none. The Lord is the one who has declared us righteous in his sight. We speak of this as our justification. He has declared us in his sight to be free, to be at liberty, no more sin. He has clothed us in a righteousness that is alien to us. It is Christ's righteousness. What has this righteousness got in common with lawlessness? Nothing. What fellowship, Paul says at the end of verse 14, has light got with darkness? Nothing. Darkness and light do not go together. And verse 15, he really kneels down into it and he says, what accord, what friendship has Christ with Belial? Belial is a nickname that is given to Satan. He is the enemy. He is worthless. He is wicked. He is Belial. And Paul says, well, what accord has Christ got with Satan? And I think this, out of all Paul's examples on this topic, is the most prescient. Paul says here, speaking about light and darkness, what have they got to do with each other? Righteousness and lawless, lawlessness. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? He uses all of these examples, but I think the one between Christ and Satan helps us with this image. How can Jesus and Satan share the same yoke? Perish the thought. It cannot be. And when it comes to that which is secular and that which is spiritual, when it comes to the two sides of the duplex regimen, there can be no union. There can be no agreement. There can be no accord between them. Seeking to apply this then, how should we respond? We have said, and we will say again, that this passage does not give us a mandate to come out of the world and to have nothing to do with it. Every single day, we as Christians are citizens of this world. We will encounter the secular world every single day. The man who brings the post up to you, the, the girl that sells you your goods in B&M or Poundland, your boss, your, your sister, your father. Every single day, we will come across men and women who we know and who we don't know, men and women who we don't like, and men and women who we love, who are men and women who have rejected Christ. What is our relationship to these men and women? Is it one of retreat? Is it one of aggression? Is it one of arrogance and nastiness? No. Again, we remind ourselves that Paul says we are in this world. We are subject to the governing authorities. There is no mandate to hide away from the world around us. We are in this world, but not of this world. And so therefore, our approach to the world that surrounds us every single day is to pray for those around us, to love them, to serve them, to pray for their salvation, to share the gospel with them when we can, and to play a full part in the communities in which we live. I rejoice that in state schools all across our little part of the world, there are Christian teachers, men and women who love the Lord, but men and women who teach every single day the next generation. 
I rejoice that every single day there are men and women who take on the uniform of the police service of Northern Ireland or are members of the uh, working team in the National Health Service or who will run out the door to go to a fire or to go and hunt for someone lost up a mountain or to go out to sea looking for an overturned boat. Christian men and women are part of every level of society and so it should be. The Christian has no room to retreat. But once more, we remember that even as we spend time in our communities, even as we play a full part in our communities, our citizenship is in heaven. And in the spiritual realm, in the church of Jesus Christ, we are to have no relationship with the pagan world that is around us. For the Corinthians, they were in such an incredibly pagan city. In 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, Paul urges them against taking part in pagan worship. And here in 2 Corinthians, as you will know, there were many false apostles and much false teaching. And so therefore the Corinthians in the spiritual world were to have nothing to do with this. It wasn't acceptable for the Christian to go down the street and and to pray in the pagan temple or to be part of the feast. It wasn't acceptable for the Christian in the church to listen to false teaching and to allow it to go unchecked. Do not be unequally yoked with believers, says the apostle. Light and darkness have nothing to do with one another. Righteousness and lawlessness have nothing to do with one another. Christ and Satan have nothing to do with one another. And so my friends in 2020 in the church of Jesus Christ in this modern age where pressure is applied to us on all sides to go along, to get along, to conform to the wisdom and the agenda of the day, what are we to do? We are to be good citizens of the societies in which we are in, but we are to be men and women of faith who realize that the standards of the world should never ever trump the standards of God. If the world has decided that the word of God is irrelevant, then the church does not seek to keep pace. If there is an elder in your church who does not know Christ, then he should not be an elder. And it might be difficult. He might be married to someone sings in the choir. He might have friends and family all around. But if he does not know Jesus, he has no business being a spiritual leader in a local fellowship. If the government decide that they are going to start trying to dictate the content of sermons, if the government decide that they will dictate what preachers can and cannot say, what is good and what is evil in the sight of the government, then we should resist that with every fiber of our being. And if there are false teachers in the church of Christ, then they should be opposed at every turn and they should be rejected. And when it comes to our own relationships with those around us, well, my friends, when it comes, for example, to dating and marriage, which is where this passage often takes us, that individual may be the greatest man or woman that you have ever met. That person who you have discovered to be someone who is very fond of you and you might want to go out with that person and eventually marry that person. If that person does not know Jesus Christ, then I would urge you not to date them, nor should you marry that person. A Christian should not be unequally yoked 
with an unbeliever. And that individual in your church might be super duper keen. He or she might be passionate about the boys' brigade or the girls' brigade or, or want to help out in the Sunday school. And your church may have very few volunteers and you might think, well, what is the harm? But that person who does not know Christ cannot seriously be considered as part of the team helping young people or old people or any people to come to know Jesus. Any yoke that seeks to unite the kingdom of God with the kingdom of man, those two duplex regimens, is a yoke that must be broken. For as the apostle says in verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? There's no agreement. There can be no peace deal. And as we get to this place, we might wonder, what on earth is Paul talking about, the temple of God? My friends, when we hear the word temple, immediately we think of a grand building, a massive big dome, lovely artwork on the walls and lots of seats everywhere and, and all the rest. That's the place you go to pray. That's the place that God lives. That's what a temple is. But that's not how Paul uses that word. You see, for the apostle, it is as he writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 to 22, the church, the people, the bride of Christ, men, women, children who have received Jesus, they are the temple of God. Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And the structure is built together as a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the living God and therefore the temple of the living God can have no agreement with idols. We are the temple, says Paul, and it is as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Paul here underlines this teaching by taking us back into the Old Testament. He takes us into Leviticus 26 here, a place where the Lord promises to dwell with and to walk among his people. We know that the Lord walked with Adam and Eve in the garden until they fell into sin and that relationship was broken. But we are the men and women of faith who long for the day that we will be with the Lord once more. Eden will be restored and the Lord will once again walk amongst his people. If this is the image, if this is the reality that the Lord is our God, we are his people, he will dwell with us and walk among us. How on earth could we have an idol to a false god sitting somewhere in the corner? How could we possibly think that a union between the things of God and the things of this world is possible? How could we ever believe such things to be true? We are the blood-bought bride of Jesus Christ. And therefore, there is to be no unequal yoke. As Paul has taken us into Leviticus, we also see the language of the covenant. The covenant of grace is summed up simply by this phrase, I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, there was the covenant with Adam, the covenant of works, a covenant that he broke. And a day today, a covenant that cannot save. 
Jesus Christ is the only one who has kept fully the law of God, passively and actively. Jesus Christ's obedience must become our obedience by faith in Christ or we will perish. The covenant of works is done, but the covenant of grace points us to Jesus and says, here is the lamb, here is the child who is coming to crush the head of the serpent. Here is the one who dies on your behalf. And if you receive him by faith, then you will be saved. No wonder we call it the covenant of grace. And sum it up, boil it down. It is here in this passage. God is our God. We are his people. Here is the glorious covenant of grace that shines out from the pages of the holy book. No wonder those who have an interest in the covenant of grace cannot have accord or agreement with the works of the devil. And Paul continues, this time in verse 17, taking us to Isaiah 52, where the people of God are urged to be separate from the world around them. Go out of their midst, says the Lord. Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. I'm sure if you've lived in Northern Ireland, then you will have heard this verse before, be ye separate, but how do we do it? How can we be separate from the world around us? We've already said every single day we are in this world. How can we be separate? Do we insist that our postman must be a Christian? Do we insist that when our car breaks down, it must be fixed by a Christian? Do we insist that the doctor who treats us when we have a heart attack must be a Christian? Is that how we do it? No, that isn't the separateness that the Lord speaks about either in this passage or in Isaiah 52. See, we aren't to consider, well, well, who is Bob friends with? And can I then be friends with Bob? Or who did this man agree with? And therefore, can I listen to this man's teaching? That is an endless cycle and one that I do not believe the Lord wants us to be riding on. In Isaiah 52, the Lord urges his people to flee from the idolatrous and pagan practices of Babylon. They are to have nothing to do with Babylon's false religion. They are nothing to do with the idols and the statues and all the false practices that are so easily creeping into the people of God. They are to be separate from it. They are not to touch these unclean things. And so in the same way, the Corinthians were to be separate from the pagan worship and outside influence, outside the walls of the church, and indeed with the false apostles inside. They were to be separate. They were to come out from the secular practices of those outside the church. And so today we take the same approach. It's okay if our postman doesn't know Christ. It's okay to be able to work in an office where our boss doesn't know Jesus. It's all right to, to live and to love in a family where perhaps, much as it breaks our heart, our, our loved ones look at us as if we are insane because we are the only ones in that family unit that know Christ. But when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to the practices of the church, when it comes to what we teach and what we believe and what we stand for, it is the word of God that directs us and compels us. It is the gospel that influences us every single day. And so therefore, 
we can have no fellowship with those who deny Christ. We cannot follow the example of those who, who go on pilgrimages and, and touch the feet of statues and idols. There can be no agreement between the Christian church and Islam or Mormonism or any of the other so-called religions of this world. We cannot agree with those around us who believe that we are all on the same road and we're all going to heaven eventually and God is going to save everyone. These are falsehoods. And we do not make images of Christ. And we cannot allow prayers to the saints. There are many well-meaning and sincere religious people in this world around us. But they are well-meaning and sincerely wrong. And my friends, I know all of this sounds very, very harsh in our modern ears. I know when we get to passages like this and we, we work out what it is saying and, and when we consider what the Lord means in all of this, it can seem that, that perhaps the preacher's got it wrong because after all, our image of Christ is that he is gentle, Jesus, meek and mild. But the church cannot have an unequal yoke with those who deny Christ. And so you may know someone who is convinced that Jesus is not the only way. And you may know a pastor who suggests that God is ultimately going to save everyone. And you may live in a town where there is a church that is engaging in practices that you're pretty sure aren't biblical. What is your response? Do you go along to get along? Or do you take a stand for the things of God and his precious word as he guides us and directs us and lights our path and urges us not to have any unequal yoke with those who are unbelievers, those who deny Christ? Why is this difficult teaching so important? Paul says in verse 18, God is a father to us and we are his sons and his daughters the apostle lifts this from second samuel chapter 7 and verse 14 but if this is true as it surely is then how can we long for agreement with the world around us how can we be men and women that thirst for unions with bodies who deny christ how can we even for good intentions and good moments, reach the hand of friendship into the secular world and seek their advice and their wisdom and their influence in our fellowships and churches. God is our Father and we are his children. It is God who has opened our eyes and brought us into his marvellous light. It is God who has lifted the veil from our eyes and he has caused us to see the glory of Christ. It is God who has lifted that veil and given us new hearts and enabled us to call upon the Lord Jesus and to be saved. It is God himself, God the Son, who laid down his life at Calvary's cross and rose again from the dead. If this is true, and it surely is, and since we have these promises, as Paul says in chapter 7 and verse 1, then beloved... 
Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. See, there's that phrase again. The fear of God. Not a servile fear that a servant has for his or her master, but a filial fear that a child has for his or her parent. It is the fear of God that drives us as we live this dual existence. As citizens of this secular world around us and as citizens of heaven longing for the return of Jesus. We are to live lives that are consistent with our confession. And while we live in these two kingdoms, this duplex regimen, these two governments... We know and we understand and believe that it is only the kingdom of God that will endure. And therefore we live every day in the fear of the Lord. Therefore we attend regularly to the ordinary means of grace, to the preaching of God's word, to the prayers, to the fellowship, to the church of Jesus Christ in our local place. We, we attend to these things. And it is the Lord who cleanses us every day. It is the Lord who grows us up. It is the Lord who answers our repentant prayers and forgives us and takes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. It is the Lord who removes from us every defilement of body and spirit. He cleanses us. He sanctifies us. He makes us holy. And when the kingdom of man, this Babylon in which we live passes away. It is the Lord who will walk among his people once more. If all of these things are true, then how could we possibly have any agreement with the harlot world around us which seeks to silence the testimony of Christ, which seeks to belittle the gospel, which seeks to make little of the one who is above all things. My friends, these are not easy things, but I pray that the Lord will help us to walk the line as we pilgrim through this barren land, as the old hymn once said. But today, let me close by asking those of you that are still firmly entrenched in the kingdom of man, why would you not accept the invitation to come out of that place? The Lord Jesus Christ today is building his church. He is building his kingdom. And all who call upon him will be received into that kingdom. So friends, please understand and please know that COVID-19 is but a little taste of the wrath and the judgment to come. Today I urge you to flee the wrath of God and to receive Christ by faith and to be saved.